Good morning. When I uh, first became a believer, I was involved in a group called Jews for Jesus. How many of you have heard of Jews for Jesus? Yeah, they're uh, an evangelistic organization. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things they taught me was how to go about uh, street evangelism, which uh, usually involves uh, handing out tracts, but also engaging uh, in conversation with people, trying to talk to people about God. And uh, they taught me that uh, a good thing to ask when you're uh, getting in a conversation, you want to uh, find out what people are spiritually, is to ask them, who would you say that Jesus is? Who would you say that Jesus is? Because the answer to that question will help you see where they are spiritually. Right? They might say, uh, Jesus is the Son of God, my Savior. <laughs> and you can say, praise God, you know the Lord. Or they might say, uh, uh, Jesus was uh, you know, a prophet. Right? It gives you an opportunity to take the conversation to the next step. Okay? But you kind of find out where they are spiritually. Now we'll see that question will be played very heavily in the passage we're going to look at today. Let's go ahead and start with verse 35 of John chapter 9. So if you would, tend to John chapter 9. And uh, reading verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And I'm going to stop there because there's a whole chapter that explains <laughs> There's a few words. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. There was a man who was cast out or was excommunicated uh, from, if you would, the synagogue because he believed in Jesus. That man was born blind, and uh, Jesus stopped by, and he healed the man of his blindness, and then Jesus walked on. And uh, the man, actually, he stopped he put clay on the man's eyes, and uh, he told the man to go wash. And then the man went wash. Jesus went on. And after the man washed the, the mud off his eyes, he could see. A great miracle, right? You've never been able to see in your life. You were born blind. There's so many things that would have to be fixed before you could actually see and understand what you're looking at. And yet the man could see after that. And... Um, the problem was Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath. The reason that was a problem is the religious leaders believed that healing was a work. And God said that in six days you will work, and on the seventh you shall rest. Right? That's the Sabbath. So here Jesus just broke the law as far as they're concerned. And uh, how, what do you do with a man who's performing miracles? God is, is on his side, clearly, and yet he's doing it on the Sabbath when God said not to do it, right? So you can kind of understand the quandary that they're at. And after much deliberation, they come to the conclusion that Jesus had nothing to do with the miracle. Just because he put clay on the man's eyes, told him to wash, the man washes and he can see, you know, it had nothing to do with Jesus, Right? Why? Because, you know, he must be a sinner. So God somehow did a miracle in spite of Jesus, right? That's the way they look at it. And they told the man, give God the glory 
we know that this man is a sinner, right? And the man kind of, uh, I don't know what to, like, what is bucks at that? He's like, whoa, I'm not ready to call this man a sinner. And he kind of goes through this reasoning, you know, in his own mind and with them and comes to the conclusion, no, this man is from God. I will not say this man is a sinner. If this man is not from God, he, he could do nothing, right? That's what the man says. And as a result, he becomes excommunicated. They, they excommunicate him from the synagogue. He gets thrown out. Okay. Read that on your own time if you want all the detail. But we'll move on here. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Now, first thing we see is, is really a wonderful thing. This man just got excommunicated, right? He's been thrown out. And that usually means in that society, everybody went to the synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue was to be put out of society. There's a verse in uh, the book of Hebrews that says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Often, so a lot of us perhaps may have been born in Christian families and didn't experience this, but uh, to many people in the world, the choice to follow Jesus is the choice to be rejected by their own family. And uh, that's what effectively this man was doing. He was willing to follow Jesus, right, bearing his reproach, meaning all the bad things people think about Jesus, they'll think about you as well. And, um, but the wonderful thing is, is it says, let us go forth to him outside the camp. So we're not leaving fellowship, we're going into fellowship. It's true, I've lost the fellowship of my family, and that's sad, but now I have fellowship with the living God, which I would say is far better, right? And so that's what it, it means here. Well, that's what we see here. The man becomes excommunicated by now, but now Jesus is seeking for him, right? It says... Uh, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him. So Jesus is looking for this person that was excommunicated because of his faith in him. Now, the other wonderful things that happen is when you respond to a certain amount of revelation, God will give you more. Right? The man didn't, I don't think he knew that Jesus was God. Right? He, he knew he was a prophet. But now Jesus is coming and says, do you believe in the Son of God? Right? Jesus is claiming to be God here. And uh, the man responds in maybe an interesting way. He says, uh, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And I think he's looking for a sign from Jesus that he's really talking about himself, right? I mean, maybe Jesus is talking about somebody else here. Remember, he's never seen Jesus yet. Now, but something that I've learned, when people lose one of their senses, their other senses get heightened. So this person probably had really good hearing, and he, he could hear the name of... One person speak once, I think he would recognize his name, his voice again, 
right? So I think he's recognizing this is the same one. But maybe he's looking for this confirmation. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And I think, again, there's a very gracious response here by the Lord, reminding the man, yes, you can see me now. Huh? You couldn't see me last time I met you. And uh, it is he who is talking with you. Right? God himself in the flesh is now speaking with you face to face. One day he will speak with you face to face. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Now, the man responds by worshiping Jesus. And uh, we need to, to remember, in this context of society, there's only one person that should be worshipped, and that is God himself. Right? When anybody tries to worship somebody else, and that somebody else is a person who respects God, they would not allow it to happen. Right? When Cornelius was uh, you know, worshiping Peter or bowing down before Peter because an angel told him to summon Peter, Peter lifts him up and says, I'm just a man like you. Right? When uh, John falls down and worships angels in the book of Revelation because of the, the greatness of the revelation to him, they say, don't worship us, worship God. Right? So the fact that Jesus is here receiving worship is a declaration of divinity. Right? Only as God, Jesus would accept worship. And he's accepting it here. So very clearly we see Jesus is claiming to be God in this passage. Now Jesus is going to give a commentary that will precipitate the following discussion. He says, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And uh, this verse it could seem challenging at first to interpret, but in the context, Jesus is talking about people recognizing that he is God. And what he is saying is those who do not see may see. And he's talking about the blind man. Here's a commoner, right, if you would, like you and like me. You know, this person had no religious training. He was granted he was raised a Jew. He had some knowledge about God, but very rudimentary. He could not read. He was blind, <laughs> You know, relied on the, whatever teaching he may have got from his parents or at the synagogue. And yet, when Jesus come, he recognizes Jesus, right? So he was a person who couldn't see, and now he can. He has the revelation of God. Jesus is really God's great revelation. It says that he is the word of God. He is God's revelation himself. Now, the, those who can see would be the Pharisees, right? They were the ones with the religious trainings. They were the ones who, you know, memorized the scriptures and, and had all these laws and supposedly knew more about God than anybody else. And yet, they were made blind. How so? Well, they didn't recognize Jesus when Jesus came. And in fact, you know, all their supposed learning caused them to reject him, right? Well, you know, we know God doesn't want us to work on the Sabbath. We know healing is a work. He healed someone on the Sabbath. Therefore, he can't possibly be God, right? I mean, their own confused religious thinking, right, became a blindfold that prevented them to see who Jesus really is. Now, they don't like what Jesus is saying here. They can tell Jesus is speaking it against them because it says, then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this word and said to him, are we blind also? Are you calling me blind? <laughs> right? And uh, Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. You know what? 
There's nothing shameful about not knowing who God is. Right? It's, it's the best thing we can do is to get on our knees and say, Lord, we do not know who you are. Reveal yourself to us. We want to know the truth. Right? We want to know who the true God is. Right? That's the very best thing you can do. There's no, no shame, no sin in that. But now you say, we see. Meaning they claim, no, 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 no. We got, we got God them. And you're not it. Right? That's what they were saying. And because of that, their sin remained. Right? They were not delivered from their sin because they claimed they saw. They claimed they knew God, even though they did not. Right? So, words of wisdom. If you don't know God, confess it. Right? There's nothing shameful about that. Claiming you know him and you know what he's like and what he's not like is what gets you in trouble. So be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Now, Jesus will turn into chapter 10, which is the chapter I really intended to cover here, not all the chapter, but uh, the discussion, often we talk about the good shepherd, is really a response of Jesus to this statement of the Pharisees, right? They claimed they saw and that Jesus wasn't God. And what Jesus will do here is he will present a list of arguments that prove that he really is God and therefore prove that they really are being blind. You see, Jesus wanted to open their eyes. Jesus wants to open everybody's eyes as, as to who he is. And, uh, and he will do so in, in uh, the next few verses. So we'll, we'll go ahead, we'll read some of the passage, we'll talk about what's in that passage that shows Jesus really is the Son of God. We'll move to the next one. And, and we'll, uh, through that, we'll cover the next next portion of scripture that we have. Okay. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So first of all, Jesus is using here what we might call a, a parable or an illustration of a shepherd. Now, this is not something he just picks by coincidence. So we, we could go through most of it and say, well, you know, we're just, we just have some general lesson about how to identify whether someone is a true shepherd or not. But God is a shepherd, right? God has a shepherd's heart. That's why David sang, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, because God really was his shepherd. Uh, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that can apply to God or to the Messiah. And he says there, uh, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And so we can say God has this shepherd heart. He, he, he looks at people and he wants to take care of people's needs, just like a shepherd would look at the sheep and wants to take care of them. He loves them. Right? God loves us. He wants to take care of us. He wants to be our shepherd. The only question is, is will we let him? 
but we let him be our shepherd. Now, uh, the first evidence that Jesus is presenting here of the fact that he is really God is looking at the shepherd and he's saying, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So I think I have a picture here explaining what a, a sheepfold is. So it's some sort of a walled or fenced off area and it will have a, a gate in it that the sheep can go in and out. Now often there will be somebody in the gate as, as there is at this case. And uh, you would expect the shepherd to use the gate, right? If you see somebody climbing over the wall, you'd say, is that the shepherd? No, that's not how a shepherd answered <laughs> the sheepfold, right? That's a problem when somebody does it. And what Jesus is pointing out is this is not what I did, right? I didn't, I didn't climb over a wall. I went in by the front gate. Now, let me tell you what I think that means. In uh, John uh, chapter, chapter 18, the words will be up there, uh, Jesus uh, is on trial himself. So now we're, that's, we're jumping ahead. That's uh, Jesus, really, the last few hours alive, he was on trial by the high priest. And that uh, the high priest is, is questioning him, and he's saying in verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrines. So the high priest is asking Jesus, you know, I want you to tell me who your disciples are and what, what is your doctrine, what is it that you've been teaching? And Jesus answers, and he said, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me, ask those who have heard me what I said to them? Indeed, they know what I said. What Jesus is saying there, look, I... I I'm not into hiding myself, right? I didn't, uh, you know, go to a corner, found a few, you know, ill-informed fishermen, and I taught them everything in secret, and I'm propagating my doctrine without anybody else knowing what I'm doing, right? It's like, no. I went to the synagogues, and I taught in the synagogues. I went to the temple. I where, where a religious Jew would go, there was Jesus claiming to be God, right? He... He used the, the front door, right? He entered. He wasn't climbing over some wall, right? He, was, he acted the way you expect the Messiah to act, right? You wouldn't expect the Messiah to be, to be coming through some side door. You'd, you'd expect him to come in the front and tell everybody, right? And that's exactly what Jesus was doing, right? So he wasn't like a thief or a robber climbing, by the, climbing over the wall. He was the one who used the gate. Okay, uh, the next evidence we have here of Jesus being the uh, God or the Messiah is he says uh, that to him the doorkeeper opens. Now, uh, I don't know if you have, uh, you know, one of these smartphone thingies. And, uh, you know, this is something that they came out in the latest or maybe, you know, next to latest uh, phone but you can actually put your thumb on it and it'll read your, your fingerprint. And if it's not reading your fingerprint, the phone won't open, right? Now, why would you do something like that? Well, the phone is precious to you, right? 
The contents are precious. You don't want anybody using the information you have in your phone, and so you're putting that extra security on it. Right? Now, let me tell you, God's people are precious to him. And when somebody comes and claims to be of God, and, and God wants people to follow him, God will make sure that you can tell this is the right guy. Right? There'll be some identification that clearly marks him. I remember when I first came to our Calvary Bible Chapel some 20-plus years ago. Actually, has it been 20-plus years ago? I think next year it'll be 20 years, sorry. One year shy, believe it or not. Um, somebody showed me a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, and he asked me to read it. I think it was Charlie Epps. And I read it, and that's the one, Isaiah 53, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Right? And Charlie asked me, who does that sound like? And I said, well, yeah, it kind of sounds like Jesus. Right? Now, the problem is that prophecy was written 700 years before Jesus was born. <laughs> so I, I shouldn't call it a problem. It was God's identification mark. Right? When the Messiah came, God wanted people to be able to recognize him. And so the scripture really is the doorkeeper, right? Right? If somebody is going to come and claim to be the Messiah, there have to be some identifying marks so we can recognize him. And the marks were there. Jesus said this, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So Jesus' listeners could have turned to the Old Testament. They had it. They've had it for hundreds of years. And they could see the prophecies being fulfilled before their eyes and say, yes, this is the one. This is the Messiah that God sent to save us. Right? Right, the third evidence we have here um, to Jesus being God is how the sheep themselves act toward him. Right? So remember, he said, uh, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice. There's this recognition that happens. Right? If I would go into a sheep pen, they would all run away from me. Right? They don't know me. Right? But when the true shepherd comes in, the sheep are comfortable. Right? This is the guy we're with all the time. He's a good guy. We know him. He feeds us. He takes care of us. Nothing to fear. And, uh, you know, when the shepherd leaves to go, he just has to go and they follow him. He doesn't have to compel them, right? If I wanted the sheep to follow me, you know, Angela, you've had experience, you know, being a shepherding. I could probably get a rope and tie it around the neck and pull it along, right? And maybe that'll work. <laughs> okay, but if I'm walking out, they're not going to follow me, right? You know, they might walk in, out after me, but they'll run in some other direction, right? It's the shepherd. They recognize the shepherd and they follow him. Right? It's a sign of a true shepherd. If that doesn't happen, well, that's not the shepherd. Right? We know it's not the shepherd. There's this relationship. Now, how is that fulfilled in the case of Jesus? Well, first of all, it's fulfilled in the case of the blind man. Right? Who was making the blind man say no to the religious authorities of his day and allow himself to get excommunicated and, and yeah, basically thrown out? Who, who, who made him do it? You know, nobody, right? It was his choice. He wanted to follow Jesus, right? Because of what Jesus had done for him, he now loved Jesus, and he wanted to follow Jesus. 
And that's, that's the sign of a true shepherd. People want to follow him. Listen to something Napoleon said. Napoleon said this. I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force, right? You'd follow them or else, right? I mean, that's how the empire was built. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, Caesar, and Alexander should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. Wow. Hard to believe an unbeliever wrote this, right? But he recognized there was something unusual, uh, unique about Jesus, that people followed him out of love, right? Nobody else. Nobody else has an empire based on love, right? Jesus is the only one. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? It's only based on our love and our relationship with him that we obey him or we follow him, right? A sign of a true shepherd, right? Now, something else that's neat here in this passage, uh, it says that he goes before them, right? The shepherd goes before the sheep, they follow him. I imagine that uh, Napoleon had servants who did for him something he never did himself, right? Like clean his toilet. I don't think he ever cleaned anybody's toilet, right? And yet Jesus went before us. He's not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do, right? He says... Uh, sorry, I don't have the verse written down. But uh, that's the point where your memory versus failure. <laughs> but uh, I think he says, uh, this is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. Right? He's only asking us to do things he himself has already done. Right? Not asking us to do anything he didn't do. Okay. Um, Let's pick up in verse 6 of John 10. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. 
Now, the other way you can tell if uh, someone is a true shepherd or not is what does he do with the sheep, right? If I'm climbing over a wall and I'm stealing the sheep, selling them for profit, or butchering them, taking the meat, selling that for profit, or eating it myself, I'm probably not the shepherd, right? I mean, there's something lacking here in the love to the sheep. It's not there. But if I'm the other way around, you know, as Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, right? What, that the sheep would be protected, right? He was the one who was the door. Now, I'm thinking when he means he's the door, I think he's talking about the guy who was sitting at the door, right? He was the one keeping the sheep safe. And, um, and why? So that they will have life, right? I want them to, to live. I want the sheep to live. And I'm going to take them in and out, right, to the pasture. I want them to have abundant life. Right? When, when someone is like that, he shows he has a shepherd heart, when he really seeks their welfare. Now, again, if you think about Napoleon and all these other leaders, you, know, you don't see them doing very much for their followers. Right? It's always about me. Right? I need more soldiers for my army so I can conquer more people, and then I'll have more soldiers for the army, or more money, or whatever it is that I want. Right? You're using people for your own benefit. Jesus was the exception to that. He says in... Uh, in Matthew 20, said, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Right? That's the way of the world. Right? If you're on top, you use the people underneath you. Yet it shall not be so among you. That's not the way the church is supposed to run. But whoever desires to become great among you, if somebody in the church wants to be great, wonderful. Let him become your servant. <laughs> That's how you're great in the church. Right? You have to be people, you have to serve other people. And you know, the more people you serve, the greater you are. Right? So if somebody wants to, to be great, wonderful. We can always use more servants in the church. There's lots of space, lots of room for that. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, right? The higher you want to go, the lower you have to go in the church, right? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, I don't think Jesus ever got anything from his disciples. I don't think he gets anything from us in the sense of what we would consider to be of value, right? He always gives, right? He gives for us. He serves us. He meets all of our needs, right? Again, the sign of a true shepherd, right? A true shepherd takes care of his sheep, right? And here we see Jesus takes care of us. Now, there's a wonderful promise here that if you haven't yet claimed, it's always never too late, but uh, if we think a little bit about what Jesus says, he says, I am the door, right? So here's the guy sitting at the doorway uh, to, to keep the sheep safe. If anyone enters by me, are you anyone? I don't think there's anyone here that doesn't qualify as an anyone. <laughs> right? If anyone enters by me, if anyone will put his trust in Jesus... Go through that door and say, Jesus, I want to be one of the sheep in this sheepfold that you have. Right? What does Jesus say? He will be saved. 
right? That's Jesus' promise, and you can take it to the bank. He's saying, if anyone will put his faith in him, they will be saved, right? Good. All right, picking up in John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. So now Jesus is not comparing himself to uh, thieves and robbers. He's comparing himself to a hireling. Right? So it's possible for me to be a shepherd, and I can't watch my sheep because you know, I have a wedding to go to. I might hire you for the job. Right? And say, here's 100 bucks, would you watch my sheep for the afternoon? That would be a hireling. Now, you know, I like getting $100, and I would like you to give me a second opportunity. So I'll do the best job I can watching your sheep, right? I mean, it makes sense. But if I see one of those things showing up, <laughs> I might have second thoughts, right? And say, you know what? A hundred bucks is nice. Making a hundred bucks again would be even nicer. But, you know, there's my life to consider him. You know, my sheep, I mean, sorry, not my sheep. Noah's sheep, you know, they're really nice and all, but, you know, I'm out of here. Right? You understand, and Jesus understands it. He says, you know, the hireling flees because he is a hireling. That's what you'd expect, right? I mean, a hundred bucks is not worth your life. But the good shepherd, see what Jesus is saying, is the one who's willing to give his life for the sheep. He would tell that wolf, you know, if you want to get any of those, you're going to have to come through me. Right? That's what the good shepherd would do. So that's, again, that's really the fifth and, and last sign we have here, of the fact Jesus is. Because, you know, he stood in the way. When he saw the wolf coming, which is really the judgment of God against my sin and your sin, he stood in the way of that. And he says, you're going to have to come through me. And uh, by the time, if you would... The wolf was done with Jesus. There was nothing left in me that the wolf needed to come after. Right. Let's, let's go ahead and look at that. So Jesus next speaks here about the cross. And that's uh, verse 15. He says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I let down my life, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. 
So Jesus is very clearly talking here about the cross, right? He's lay, talking about laying down, down his life, <clears throat> which is, again, one of the things that shows he is God, right? He knows the future, right? Jesus knew about the cross before the cross happened. To us, we look back, you know, we're not surprised. But Jesus was able to look in advance. Everybody was amazed. His disciples couldn't even believe it, right? They couldn't believe that he was talking about dying, right? It, was, it seemed so incredible to them. And yet Jesus knew exactly where he was going. Now, he says here a number of things about the cross that you know, are helpful to understand. One, one of the other questions that people would say would be good to ask to know where somebody is spiritually is to ask them the question, you know, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Right? That's a good question. It'll show you where people really are spiritually. Do they know why Jesus died on the cross? <clears throat> well, Jesus will tell us here why he died on the cross. So if you don't know the answer yet, I'm hoping you'll know it in the next few minutes. So the first reason Jesus gives, you know, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, so that the sheep will not have to. Right? He says it. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? It's him or the sheep. Right? The wolf is coming, which we pointed out was God's judgment against our sin. Jesus can move out of the way and let God's judgment fall upon us. Or he can stand in the way and let God's judgment fall upon himself. Right? And praise God, he took that place for me and for you. Now the other thing we see here, why did Jesus die on the cross? In verse 16, he says, because of the sheep that he has. He wants to have one flock with one shepherd he, because he wants the relationship, right? He wanted to, have, to be our shepherd and for us to be his sheep. And for that relationship to be possible, we have to be alive. And for us to be alive, Jesus had to die on the cross, right? God wants to have a relationship with you. And Jesus was willing to die on the cross for that relationship. Now, the other wonderful thing that's hidden here is the fact that Jesus didn't just, just want uh, the Jews, he wanted the Gentiles as well, which again showed to me that he was God, because nobody else in that society was thinking about the Gentiles yet. <laughs> Jesus was thinking about the Gentiles. He's saying, I have other sheep that I must bring, right? And there will be one flock, right? He would take Jew and Gentile and make them one. And there will be one shepherd, right? He'll be the shepherd of us both. The third reason that Jesus says he had to die on the cross is in verse 17. It says, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. What he's saying is, I had to die so that I could rise again from the dead. Right? My father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Why did Jesus need to rise from the dead? Well, to start with, to show us that he was God. Right? That was the final great proof that he was God, and he would have to die before he can rise from the dead. Also, his resurrection would uh, show that he really did the work he was supposed to do. If, if Jesus was on the cross, and there God lays all my sins upon him, and he's judging him for my sin, and Jesus dies, how do I know for sure that there still isn't some wrath reserved in heaven against my sins? 
Well, you know it when you see Jesus rising from the dead. Right? You know it. what he said is true. It is finished. Right? All my sins have been paid in him. There's nothing else left to pay. <clears throat> the fourth thing that we see here of why Jesus died on the cross is it was in obedience to the Father. So we need to be careful. We don't think that you know, God the Father was angry with us and he wanted to judge us for our sins and somehow you know, God the Son stood in between and blocked what his Father wanted to do to us. No, the Bible says God's, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Right? So it, it, it's the Godhead in agreement about it. Jesus says, as the Father knows me, I also know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is all of God wanting you completely saved. Okay? There's no disagreement about the Godhead on that one subject. Your salvation is of paramount importance. And uh, the Father was willing to sacrifice his own son for you. To have this relationship with himself that he wanted you to have. Okay. So Jesus is done. And our sermon is almost done. <laughs> the response. How did people respond to Jesus? Verse 19. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of this saying. You know how people responded? They were divided. Right? How were they divided? And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Right? So you see the division. Now, if you ask people today, who do you think Jesus is? There's not going to be a lot of people that will say that Jesus was demon-possessed and crazy. Right? I mean, nobody ever told me that. Right? But these people said he was. Right? He said he's demon-possessed and he's crazy. Don't listen to him. Right? Now, C.S. Lewis said something that I thought was very insightful, so much so that I wanted to read it. And I don't think it's the first time it's been read here. But it's so good, it's worth reading again. He said this, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. What's the really foolish thing he doesn't want you to say? I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. Right? That's, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Right? You cannot say that you are God and you are the only way for salvation and that be a lie or a delusion and yet at the same time be a great moral teacher. I mean, the two don't add up together, which is what C.S. Lewis will continue to say. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I don't know why... C.S. Lewis picked that, must be meaning something in his, in his society, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
you must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You, ki- you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, which is what the man who was blinded, right? Fell at his feet, called him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And it's really that thought that really comes out in this passage. Jesus didn't want us to just think he was a great moral teacher because that would do us no good. Right? You'd, you'd come away, like in every other religion, and you'll say, well, I have to do this, 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 and then I'll be right with God. The problem is you cannot make yourself right with God. You need someone to save you from your sins. And the only one who can save you from your sin is God himself. And that's why it was critical to Jesus that people recognized who he was, that he was God in the flesh. And it's the people today who would say Jesus is a prophet or Jesus was a great moral teacher and refuse to accept that he is God that are actually more often the Jews who said that he was crazy and demon-possessed. I mean, it doesn't make sense. He cannot be just a good moral teacher. You cannot stand on that foot. He's one or the other. You have to decide. Now, praise God, there were people who uh, recognize that it doesn't fit, right? You cannot, it doesn't fit that Jesus was crazy. I mean, if Jesus was crazy, I mean, if people of his society knew what a crazy person was like. You know what a crazy person is like. I've seen them at Berkeley. <laughs> you know, I mean, what they say doesn't make any sense, right? And they, they have issues dealing with society, right? Uh, there's problems there. Jesus wasn't, right? He was very sane. Everything that he said fit. Everything he told people to do was good. That's the reason people today say he was a great moral teacher, because you cannot look at what Jesus said and say anything other than that, right? So it doesn't make sense to say he was lunatic or demon-possessed, right? It doesn't add up with what Jesus said. And uh, then they asked the question, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? When Jesus came into this world, he wielded supernatural power on a scale never heard before and never seen again. Who can that be? Who is the one person who can come into this world and display such power? Right? Only God. Only God could do that. And so C.S. Lewis finishes his statement. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Right? There's no other same conclusion but accepting that Jesus is God. Now, I know what most of you would say if I asked you the question, who do you say Jesus is? But uh, I don't know what all of you would say. <laughs> and... Uh, I just want you to recognize this is a choice God wants you to make. If you have not made it yet, if you haven't 
determined for yourself who Jesus is and your relationship to him. This is something that God wants you to do. And uh, all I can say as someone that uh, has been a sheep myself for almost 20 years is that uh, my life has never been as good before I was a believer in the Lord Jesus than how it became afterwards. Right? I can come and praise him for every step of the way he led me since I've trusted in him. I want to close, if I can, with uh, the words of King David, written about a thousand years before Jesus came, and yet one who himself experienced what it's like to be a sheep of God. As an encouragement to you if you have not yet made him uh, your own sheep, and perhaps uh, an appreciation if you are his sheep as well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord Jesus, we want to give you thanks for uh, telling us about yourself today and uh, revealing yourself as a great shepherd that would love nothing better than to have us as his sheep. Lord, we know that there's people in this room whose heart is not right with you and haven't yet come to know you as their own wonderful shepherd, Lord. We pray for them that uh, you might draw them to yourself, show them the wonderful life that you have laid in store for them, that they might too come and commit themselves to the great shepherd of the sheep. For we ask it in his name. Amen.